Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Welcome in. It's another longish one today, so get yourselves ready for that. Uh, so I'm not going to spend much time chit-chatting beforehand, but needless to say, Shane and I are still talking about the mega church and, and, and toxic and traumatic church spaces more generally, I guess. And today we are talking about the creep, which is not about a person <laughs> specifically, but something we flagged last episode as being an interesting idea to reflect on, which is to say how things change over time, starting off perhaps relatively mild, but ending up kind of crazy as time goes on and, and things just creep and escalate over time. But because you're inside it, you don't actually notice it necessarily, at least not right away. Maybe some questions come to the surface and you're like, hmm, but then you're like, oh no, don't be silly, or everyone else seems to be fine or whatever. But actually over time, things can end up in a really bizarre or unhealthy or toxic or harmful place. So we talk about all of that today. We talk about a bunch of ways that this creep contributes to the toxicity and to the trauma that people experience within some of these faith communities. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Are there things that can stop it from happening? That's what we dive into today. And I think I think it's a really good chat. And so I hope it's helpful. One thing to note is that even as we look at the creep and the escalation of these things over time, we're not we're not really offering, even as we we explore a number of ways in which the creep impacts on particular things, like altar calls, for example, uh, today, there's a bunch of theological stuff about those things that we're not really getting into at, at this point. So when we talk about the escalation of those things or of money or, or of other things that we discuss, honor, we're not offering a theological assessment really of whether or not there should be even such things in the first place, right? Which is an interesting conversation. But more observing just how these things can become more and more intense over time and how unhealthy that can be. So do bear that in mind as you listen. Um, some of the things just start out a bit unhealthy and end up really unhealthy, but they weren't great to begin with. And some things start kind of actually as okay things, but end up really bad. So, so we're not diving into that aspect so much today as, as we are just talking about the creep. I did also just want to say thanks again for the loads of feedback we're getting from people. If you were ever tempted to think that you are alone out there in this experience, well, we can tell you after the last few weeks that you're definitely not. You're definitely not alone. So you can get in touch uh, with Shane and I via email, feedback at intheshift.com, or you can find the In The Shift on the social medias, on uh, on the Facebooks and the Instagrams and, and so on. Uh, Instagram in particular is, I think, perhaps because it offers a little bit of anonymity for people uh, to give feedback and 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 share some of their ideas. So there's a, there's a bit of engaging in the conversation that's going uh, on there, which is awesome. Uh, in particular, I want to acknowledge uh, one one of the kinds of feedback that we've had just in the last few days in particular, uh, several times, and that's uh, to acknowledge those who are asking for some female voices in this conversation, uh, which is such an important point, um, especially because male voices have so often been dominant in these churches, so often been the ones who have been the architects of a lot of the toxicity that we're talking about and the implementers of it. And there is a particularly gendered shape to some of these experiences as well. And so then to have male voices again dominant in the processing out of this trauma, like in this podcast, can actually be difficult for some people. And I think we're, we're missing some of the ways in which this conversation is shaped by our different gendered experiences so far, um, just by virtue of the fact that it's two straight white guys talking about it, right? So I think um, I think when Shane and I first recorded um, the the part one of this mega church thing, we didn't in- anticipate perhaps what this would turn into. We knew each other so well that we felt like we were a safe space for each other to talk about some of this publicly. And I think we've only really realized as the conversation has flowed on 
just how much there is that still needs to be talked about, how many people would find this helpful, how many people would be kind of processing their trauma in real time in some respects as they listened. Uh, so we kind of recognize now, yes, the need for more diverse voices as we move forward to bring those different perspectives and insights and, and experiences. Um, for sure. Yes. Thank you. Um, so we definitely hear that. Um, yeah. So with all of that said, this is episode 60 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Well, here we are again, Shane and I, talking about the mega church. Hello, Shane. Hello. This is. Are we going to reference the fact that this is our second crack at this? Because I didn't start recording. You didn't start recording. And we had some. We had some really good banter. Oh, it was. Trim, it was like that too. kind of banter at the start of a podcast episode that uh, uh, that helps people to really connect with who we are as people, and oh, therefore so trust us and listen to everything we have to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So anyway, we'll skip all of that this time. Uh-huh. And uh, today what we want to talk about is something that we flagged in the last episode, which was this notion of the creep. And no, we are not talking about a particular individual, although some of them are a bit creepy, it seems. <laughs> uh, we are talking about this idea of, of how things, and, and we've flagged it actually a number of times through our conversation so far, which is that things don't usually start out the way they uh, how they end up or how they become over time. Things escalate over time. Often things start out with little little um, seeds and threads that just slowly amplify and grow over the course of time. Uh, I think you used the phrase in our last conversation, mild to wild, which, oh, <laughs> look, I just felt like I was under the spout where the glory comes out when you said that. and uh, That's going to go on a hat also. Yes. <laughs> Our burgeoning merch. Um, so, so this is what we want to talk about today. How does this kind of happen? Why does it happen? Uh, what's going on here? And, and what are some of the things that we actually need to pay attention to, all of us, that are involved really in communities of any kind, but obviously in particular here looking at, at church communities, religious spaces, uh, and, and churches that, that grow as well over time. So um, we want to look at that trajectory. Um, what do we do to convince ourselves that that's okay? How do we lose perspective? All sorts of things we, we want to discuss here. Yeah. Absolutely. Can we keep using your mixed metaphor of seeds and threads so that we could like eventually grow a jumper out of some kind of vines? Would be great. Well, there's an Adam and Eve reference too there, isn't there? You know, vines and, Ooh, and, and clothes and covering uh, parts. Yes. <laughs> Good. This is going well so far. Uh, look, I um, I'm, I'm great for a, for a mixed metaphor from time to time. So we'll <laughs> <laughs> just run with that. It's one of your gifts. <laughs> Don't question me. Just uh, accept my authoritative <laughs> statement, please. In case anyone is not aware, Michael is definitely still in charge of this podcast. <laughs> I will not be usurped by a more charismatic, more energetic person coming through the ranks. I will put him in his place. <laughs> And eventually, 50 episodes down the track, people uh, who have been with us on this entire journey, journal, uh, journey will think that everything is normal uh, and people who jump into it will be going like, wow, this is a bit crazy, what's going on here? <laughs> but for those inside the bubble, everything will seem exactly as it should be. That's, that's until, that's until you break away and start your, uh, your new podcast in a different city 
Oh, you're already are in a different city. Well, that doesn't really work. Well, I have to get uh, permission from you to do so. Well, <laughs> is that how it works? I haven't sent you the anti-competition clause uh, contract yet. So, <laughs> anyway, hey, look, we managed to do some banter. Tremendous. Oh, look at that! <laughs> okay, sorry you everybody. Back to the serious business now. Uh, we're going to talk about the creep, <laughs> and and there are a few. Well, there are in fact a number of dimensions within um, church culture where we see this creep happen. We've already, in fact, talked about some of those. Um, honor culture, for example, is one of those things that that has changed, that changes and escalates over time, right? Mm. Um, mm. I remember when uh, in the in the kind of one of the one of the origin stories of honor culture within certainly within New Zealand um, mega churches, and I'm sure this must be the case elsewhere, but I know within New Zealand is that people used to, American preachers used to come here and lament how they were treated. And and so I know a number of senior pastors of churches will tell these stories about how we had so-and-so out from America or whatever, and they couldn't believe that they were only given such and such amount of money for coming and speaking, and they had to fly, you know, um, to, you know um, regular airfares, and they were put up in people's homes instead of, ho- you know, and, and, and so the story of kind of, how badly we A we're, poverty spirit. Yeah, poverty mindset, a poverty spirit, a lack of honour in New Zealand. And so um, we talked um, a couple of episodes ago about the origin story of megachurch culture here, at least, New Zealand and Australia, I think. Mm. Uh, I think maybe in America the story's slightly different because it's been entwined with some of that wealth and status for a bit longer there. Mm. Um, but here, that's a, definitely a part of the origin story and, and honour culture was a part of that as well. We've been treating these people poorly, now we need to start honouring them. Um, but again, we see that escalate and escalate and escalate and escalate. <laughs> to absurd and ridiculous levels. Yes. Uh, and then suddenly it becomes that uh, if they're getting that treatment, so should we. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. So the visiting people are getting that treatment now, so then we should start getting that treatment now. Uh, and then when we travel, mm. we expect that treatment, and so we're going to say, I need this, 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 and this. And mm. Yeah, and, and as we kind of referenced last time, some some of it was to correct a power imbalance that happened within the church where, um, you know, because one of the solutions for some of the, the things happening at some of these spaces has been they just need a stronger board of elders, which is absolutely true. Um, but there have been many circumstances in which boards of elders have held coercive control um, and have used and abused um, congregations and ministers. And so some of this was a counterbalance to to that happening of, you know, you should be treating this person that has been entrusted to kind of help curate the community with some kind of respect and not use them as the, your lackey and humiliate them. Mm. Um, so the answer to that is to escalate them to a place where they can humiliate everyone else and use them as their lackeys. Yeah, actually, interestingly in New Zealand, that. I think one of the one of the one of the people who was who were the big drivers behind reversing that dynamic between pastors and elders was actually Frank Houston. So back in the seventies. Uh, 60s and 70s, he essentially said, look, we can't have churches, have pastors who are being dominated by their eldership boards, so let's mm. let's flip that script and give mm. the power to these, to us, the pastors, so that we can, and, you know, and the growth of the churches under his watch expanded, obviously, then Proved he went to, to Australia and mm-hmm. uh, had great success, despite his incredibly horrendous behaviour under the... Uh, yeah, under, I'm, not, I'm not sure he went to Australia so much as perhaps was moved to Australia. Moved or escaped yeah, or, uh, story or ran or day. whatever it yeah. is, yeah. Yep. Uh, and so... Thank goodness there were no elders to hold him to account. And so in New Zealand and Australia, there are some connections uh, in that culture. Mm. Um, 
and, and where it sort of comes from. But yeah, so so it starts as that kind of correction, and then it also flows it flows down. I remember, um, you know, again being at a conference, like conference stories are always great for honor culture. Um, <laughs> but so so you're getting this increasing layer of absurdity in honor culture that then flows down, so that you've got someone who's a volunteer who's been put in charge of security along the hallway or something that goes between the green room and the <laughs> and the front row seats in the auditorium and that person just escalates and escalates uh and so suddenly that you know <laughs> they just they can a, march through you know they're, they're a volunteer doing security and, and they don't want to get reamed out by somebody for letting the wrong thing happen or letting the 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 anointed ones get touched by the unwashed masses and so you know <laughs> suddenly they're the like eyes. clear the halls clear the halls you know <laughs> a speaker is coming through uh and so <laughs> the escalation uh, through all of those spaces yeah just gets more and more absurd over time and but but of course how the creep happens is within those spaces because of that normalization yeah. as it seems yeah it seems completely appropriate um from the inside um and it's not until someone from the outside witnesses it and names it that uh i mean it's you know emperor's new clothes stuff mm. where someone's like mm. wait, <laughs> wait a minute i haven't bought into the system um who who, na- who names it and others within the system can go hmm maybe this is odd or uh quickly attack that person with pitchforks. Yeah, so it's incremental um, escalation, which means it's harder to discern when, you're, uh, when you yeah. live your life within that space uh, and so yeah. much of your yeah. time is within that space. It's, especially when it's attached to good goodness, especially when the means to the end, it's producing the kind of thing that we, that we all, quote unquote, um, that we all want. And mm. so if there's those internal justifications for these things, um, then that's what we all want. And therefore, yeah, as we talked about, the means to the ends mm. are justified. Mm. And so it's much harder cr- to critique things that are producing the kinds of things that, quote unquote, we all want. Mm. Yeah, and then we layer some yeah. spiritual language on top of it and baptize of course. it and, 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 and make it mm. then then it becomes not just the things we've started doing but now it becomes in fact we're just we're doing this because this is God's way um, yeah. which really and, yeah. and, and and especially you know within yeah evangelical Pentecostal churches of this, of this context because um, <laughs> so few have uh, done any decent study of church history um, this is the way that church has always been you know it's the way mm. Our, mm. our fathers and their fathers before them did it uh, and so you can't question this practice because this is what church is mm. and the other ways are either wrong or dead mm. or never existed in the first place because yeah you know, and, and, and often you'll hear within these kinds of spaces that essentially the churches who don't follow these particular principles they're all the ones that are dying the only ones that are yeah. succeeding are the ones that are doing what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we see yeah. this escalation. And we know so, because we stole we stole the people from them. So <laughs> they've told us. <laughs> the um the so there's yeah so honor culture is one place. Obviously, we've already touched on the escalation of the, the creep over time. Um, money it happens around money as well, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's always interesting to watch someone's uh, experience of an offering uh, an offering mm, session mm, at a conference for the first time mm. um, who has never witnessed that thing before. Do you want to explain what an offering session is, Michael? <laughs> Not really. Uh, <laughs> Neither. Um, but I, the, the, um, the money thing is, is again, uh, can start in a healthy place. Actually, it doesn't always start mm-hmm. in a healthy place. Sometimes it starts unhealthy and just gets progressively worse. <laughs> but this idea of generosity, of, of being a part of a community where we, where we do put resource into it together to help one mm. us look after each other, um, to help mm. n- nurture and nourish a, a space and a community that's then 
nurturing and nourishing for us. Uh, and so mm-hmm. in that space, generosity and and so on can, can be a health, healthy and good thing. Um, but the creep over time to let's take up let's take up an offering, but we're actually needing a bit more at the moment. So let's just push that a little bit harder. In fact, why don't we spend maybe five minutes each service talking about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it becomes, actually, why don't we just amp that up a little bit and make sure the keyboard player is playing E minor when we talk about that for five minutes. <laughs> and then, you know, and, and, and then and over time, yeah, you end up at conferences where whole sessions are spent sort of devoted to. So, so people go to conferences and they pay their fee to go sometimes even volunteers who are volunteering the whole time, still paying their fees as well to attend the conference, so to speak, um, to attend it in the car park in the rain. <coughs> and then... Um, All being yelled at. Yeah, and then um, and then the level of, of coercion and manipulation that starts to take place to try and draw money out of people to often give to the speakers or to um, make the budget work uh, mm. and, and so on. Um, and so, yeah, you end up with an hour-long session talking about how, you know, trying to get money out of people, essentially. Uh, mm. And you pick, which, you pick which, people... To, when you start the session, yeah. you think it's just a sermon, but um, mm. <laughs> it turns out it's actually a sermon about a very particular thing with a very particular result in mind. Yes. And, and in fact, yeah, you know, lots of yeah. churches will talk about this sort of behind closed doors, which is, hey, we're, we're needing more money for the church at the moment, um, either because the budget isn't quite meeting or we're wanting to expand, we're wanting to grow our staffing, or we're wanting to... Uh, take on a new asset or whatever it might be, and we're short of funds mm-hmm. compared to where we'd like to be. Probably not short of funds compared to a small community Baptist church or something, but short of funds in that world. Um, so let's do a series talking about stewardship and the importance of managing your money well. And just so happens that woven into that is a pretty <laughs> is a pretty uh, strong emphasis on tithing and giving and generosity and offerings and and so on, um, sort of under the guise of helping people to manage their money well. Mm. Um, but mm. everybody behind the scenes knows that a big part of why they're doing it because, is because they all sit in the, in the meetings afterwards and go, look at the bump we got in our, in our offerings as a result of this series that we did. We bumped it by 20%, we bumped it by 30%, and pastors talk to each other about these things at conferences and, oh, okay, what kind of series did you do? And, oh, I better go back and do that at my church and, and so yeah. on. Yeah, and again, in, 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 internal justification. They can they can say like that. This is what Christian giving is because you know, like if God if God is the church, um, in in that worldview, um, and people are giving money to the church, that is ultimately good, and that is ultimately what God wants. And so, giving to God equals giving to the church, mm. and we got them to give to the church more, which is more giving to God, which is more faithful, faithfulness, which is more goodness, which is everybody wins. I mean, we win more, obviously, but everybody everybody wins. They're getting to be more Christian while we have an increased budget so that we can do good things for God, mm. which often, not always, you know, they, that money goes to lots of different places and lots of different, different contexts, but there, there's, you know, often a self-serving mechanism within it. Yeah, so 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 there's the aspect of the money creep that happens over time in terms of how we get money from people, but there's also the money creep of how we spend that money and where we spend it, and the opulence of of people at the top of the the, the pyramid um, mm. as well. So it starts out with just yeah, well, it's important that and it you know um, again starting often with good intentions. We don't want church leaders to be you know. Yep. desperately struggling to make ends meet 
if they're a part of yep. the community, how we how, how can we make sure we support them and and make sure that they're looked and, after. And again, historically, there's stories of that. That's part of this <clears throat> yeah. reaction as yeah, well yeah. Of, of 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 ministers who you know who had to essentially neglect their families by overworking mm. um, and working jobs alongside this and couldn't keep up with all the demands, and then yeah. were paid poor to keep them humble mm. and mm. all of those mm. things. Which again, it's another form of abuse. Mm. Um, yeah, the pastor this, buys this, a new pair of pants, and everyone's like. Ooh. You know, um, don't know about that. But again, the escalation, the creep over time to then actually the pastor becomes kind of the aspirational figure who should be embodying <laughs> the, the prosperity of what happens when you follow God's principles and, yep. and you can end up justifying all sorts of abuses of, of those church funds for yep. for the opulence of whether it's the pastor directly or the pastors or the senior leaders or the green room or the, you know all that kind of stuff. Um, the green, yep. the suppers in the green room have to get more and more spectacular every year, uh, which is also connected to honor culture, of course. Yeah, yeah. If you, if if you give, you could be just like me. When the truth is, if you could get people to give to you, you could be just like me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So th- this comes out in a whole bunch of ways. So like the, the that. Yeah, just kind of thinking about some of the things which um, once you exit a particular culture, you are able to see more clearly. Mm. Um, and even, you know, when you're in them, you can see them clearly enough sometimes. Um, but yeah, th- things like uh, like salvation altar calls mm. um, and mm. getting people to respond to God. Um, maybe we'll kind of get into the details of some of this as we explain the mechanisms yeah. um, rather than going diving deep here. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with that practice, it's essentially um, this particular view of um, what God is doing in the world where um, conversion from being outside the church or out, outside, you know, Christianity to, to giving your life and, you know, converting to becoming inside Christianity and the mechanism in the system for that is often this idea called altar calls, which is calling people to the front to make a physical representation of the the decision they're making to say, right, I'm going to accept Jesus into my heart and turn my life around and give my life to God and this is how I'm going to show it with this decision point and for within these theological frameworks, that's the moment that you are converted and you are saved and you become, you know, one of the God people and and those things there. And so this, uh, what starts off as an invitation to a particular way of life or to a particular decision point, uh, project that down the road a few years and then suddenly you've got uh, these incredibly aggressive and manipulative environments which are, you know, stacking things in a particular way where it's very, very difficult to refuse um, Mm. that invitation, which is probably no longer an invitation when it's so coercive, uh, to give your life to God in a way that many people afterwards in hindsight feel quite violated by. Mm. But of course, no one talks to them about that because they're not around anymore. Yeah, and you've still got their, that stat on your on your report to say X yep. number of people, How many people got went saved? to the front. Yeah, uh, and, that, yep. and that makes you feel good. And it makes you feel amazing. And, yep. and it feels good at the time to see all these, look at all these people. Um, yeah. And sometimes that's the justification for, for megachurch um, toxicity is to say, mm. but look at all the people who are getting saved, you know. Exactly. Um, look at, yeah. 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 Look at the fruit. And you get, you actually get people um, who don't become. Look at all the fruit. <laughs> no, not all the fruit, just the fruit we want you to see. Uh, and, you know, th- then you get people who become specialists at like, actually on either of those money, money offering talks or altar calls mm-hmm. who are like mm-hmm. the, you get it like a closer, you know. So um, some yep. conferences you get the preacher who gets up and preaches and then you've got the closer who gets up at the end and does the altar call because they're really, really, well, 
The yep. spiritual language is that maybe it's their gifting or they're anointed for that purpose. But in fact, what it is mm. often is that they are just really, really good at, um, <laughs> at creating emotional levels of manipulation and coercion. Uh, and and the level to which that can escalate so that it's like if you because you're encouraged to bring your, your friends along and then you get the person saying now turn to the person next to you and ask them do you want to go up the front you know because because not enough people have responded during the the big chorus that you sang yeah. uh, and, yeah. to, and and you know and I've been in services where that's you know the 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 person says the closer says that from the front now turn to the and then we all sing the song again and then gets up and says and everybody's in trouble. I saw many of you not turning to the person next to you and asking them. And so then we're going to do it again and I'm watching you. Um, and I see many of you who brought your neighbour along and would actually like to be able to look them in the eye tomorrow. Um, <laughs> so didn't ask them directly because you felt like that was a violation of your relationship. You know, and it's really all in service of that moment and that moment mm. then being celebrated. And you can come up with good rationales for why that moment might, might matter for people. And especially if you feel mm. like their eternal destiny and hell is on the line, then you can justify yeah. all sorts of things in that moment. But yeah, the escalation. Yeah. I mean, altar calls themselves, you know, again, talking about like what what the church has always done only became a, th- a thing in the 1800s, um, you know, mostly out of America. In a very particular set of sociological yeah, yeah, circumstances. Yeah, in a very particular set of circumstances. Phoebe Palmer was the first person to introduce um, that kind of language in American revivalism in the mid-1800s. The idea of the altar call, the idea of coming forward um, to the altar, which is kind of actually slightly bizarre language when you think about it in the context of kind of church spaces <laughs> that we have, because the altar is very kind of temple language and and so on from a mm. from a vastly different time and, and place and context. I did have a friend uh, message me uh, who's who's never been I don't you know who doesn't not from church um, environment at all in their life and uh, they would just text me because I've been listening along they're like um so what's a so what's an altar call that language just made absolutely no sense <laughs> let alone masturbation altar calls really... which came up um, <laughs> another time <laughs> then they were like surely surely not surely not that that's no um, no anyway yeah so 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 the creep we see there any other areas we see that happen yeah so I mean obviously this comes uh, out in purity culture yeah. um, as this kind of like increasing like delineation of what of what is pure and impure and what you <laughs> who 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 you you are allowed to touch um, <laughs> and where and when and in what relationship status uh, which yeah gets uh, the creep gets creepier and creepier as yes. there's uh, more and more discussion around exactly what happens with whose bodies um, growth aspirations um, mm. yeah like how 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 to get to an end goal of of, of a growing church of this size mm. and this influence, um, including kind of like really specific numerical figures which you aim towards mm. and have to keep on pushing towards and departments get mm. called to account for whether they're growing or not. Um, and then if you don't reach those numerical figures, there's trouble. But then if the tr- church doesn't reach those numerical figures, it just doesn't get talked about for a few years mm. <laughs> because that never happened. Yeah, it's interesting even with like growth because I think one of the things that's – and this is important – for all levels of church um, community, which is that there's it's, it's a little bit like gambling, <laughs> which is that just a little bit more would be good. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you're like, oh look, yeah, yeah th- things are things are going okay, but it'd just be great if we had another hundred people because then yeah. we could really, you know, be in a place a where we could do X, Y, and Z and. And and we'd have the resources to do this, and we'd have more people to lead these these groups, and we could do a bit in the community, or or we could just have a a, a better vibe, and things would 
feel better with just just a hundred more people in the room would be good, um, or fifty mm. or twenty or however you know because that can start even when you're you're, you're twenty or twenty people in your church of community course, and you're yeah. like oh and, and of course there's a yeah. natural impulse to that and growth is not always bad, um, of course not not what we're saying but but that um, that you can start out there but you never actually arrive you never reach I'm going to mix all my metaphors again never reach the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> Um, because it's always like if we just had a if we just wearing your vine jumper <laughs> if we just had a little a, a little leprechaun at the end of the rainbow um, <laughs> look I'm I'm part Irish I can I can say that uh, uh, you know you you never actually reach the point where you're satisfied with oh, cool you know uh, and maybe you know there's theological reasons for that too um, in terms of how you see church's yeah. mission but um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then that that leads to a kind of creep in the way that you you use people, mm. um, the way that you um, see volunteers, the way that you see leaders, that who you're allowed to talk to, like what, all of those kinds mm. of things. Where um, you know a, le- a leadership structure which starts out as being you know a way of organising things becomes a way of um, becomes like a, a a mechanism in which you know people become human resources to use great capitalist mm. <laughs> language. Um, uh, where you effectively spend them, um, and mm. sometimes they get spent, uh, but that's okay because you know we're we're working towards this end goal. Mm. And so, mm. yeah, I think I think all that all of this comes back to um, you know doing what it takes to reach your goals. Yeah, what is it? What is it that we really want? Um, which is what God wants. What is it that God wants? God wants a healthy, growing church. God wants increase. God wants blessing. God wants abundance. God wants all of these things. You can tell I'm getting excited because now I'm waving my arms around. Um, <laughs> and if God wants those things, then we need to find ways of making that happen. Um, and there are ways of doing that which have worked in the past. Um, and so, if it works, work it. So, mm. if X works. Um, then more X will work really well, mm. you know. So if um, a little bit of enthusiasm works, then lots of enthusiasm will work really well. If a little bit of pressure works, then maybe more pressure will produce even more good results, which will make God very happy. Um, and when you've achieved these results using X, um, going backwards isn't an option. And so you need to keep using that because if you are uh, uh, place of growth and a place of flourishing and vitality and we're moving forward and God is doing new things and you know everything gets better the best is yet to come then you can't then back down from that so you need to keep using that but that becomes the baseline of which you need to then escalate things mm. from um, so it's about yeah finding the most effective means to an end and then taking what can start as being um I'd call it maybe maybe a way of looking at it is the, is the creep from invitation to coercion. So as, as as we kind of had this discussion, I was thinking the other day about um about lots of these things begin in a place of invitation. So it's saying you know like um you know as a church we've kind of discussed together what, what we'd like to do in the world, um and to do that we need these resources, um and this is our common goal that we've all you know. Uh, found some kind of consensus on and we're going to need resources to do it how about we give towards that and that's and that's a good thing that's a great that's a great invitation where people are invited to participate in something hopefully that they've had a voice in and they've had a say in and it's actually not just someone's you know ego project but it's actually you know an expression of community um but invitation creeps towards 
coercion. It usually doesn't just jump to mm. coercion because that would seem ridiculous and mm. inappropriate and would get called out. But so maybe we could think about it as invitation becomes encouragement. Um, we would like to invite you to participate in this thing. We'd like to invite you to meet Jesus. We'd like to invite you um, to become a leader and lead in a particular way or become a volunteer. Um, but then that can move slowly down the scale towards encouragement, which doesn't seem that bad, does it? <laughs> which is um, goes from, would you like to do this, to I'd like you to do that, or you could do that. Um, do you know what? I again, see, like, I see something in you. I see... You know, oh, I see real potential yeah. in you, and you've got the capacity and the and the capability to really be something. Yeah, and so yeah. why yeah. don't you? And you're doing no. this, but if you could just do what if you what if we gave you an opportunity to do a bit mm. more? Yeah, um, and that and again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it creeps closer and closer, or down, further further down the scale towards coercion, it actually gets darker and darker. Mm. So invitation becomes encouragement. Encouragement might become pressure. So you should do this, or if we want to get there, we have to do this. Um, and, and, and it becomes kind of like more emotionally strong and the stakes get higher and Mm. higher as we move down the scale. And so, um, it's, I need you to do this or God needs you to do this or we need to do this or who's going to do this because we've got this end goal in mind. And if no one does it, or I've been doing all of this, and no one's helping me. So who's who's going to do this? I I need someone to do this. You should do this. And then we move down the scale towards coercion, which is um, I'm going to make it impossible or very difficult for you to not do this. Um, and that happens in direct and indirect ways. So in indirect ways, that happens through like group pressure and atmosphere and disconnection from your regular life. So that might manifest itself in, um, you know, say with um, Salvation Older Calls, you know, like where you know, there's this kind of like increasingly um, emotionally burdensome <laughs> um, a- atmosphere which makes it harder and harder to resist. There's group thinking, group psychology involved. There's leveraging people's direct relationships by getting to them to turn to someone who might feel obligated to them and saying, do you want to respond to this? And putting them in a pressure moment where rather than it being a question of do you want to do this or not, it's I'll be disappointed in you if you don't mm. and you will shame shame me and might fracture mm. our relationship if you don't. Um, and then there's more direct ways like you know the threat of eternity um is a very direct way um the kind of abuse that happens in these leadership structures is a very direct way blacklist threatening to blacklist people or telling them they'll never amount to anything if they don't you know get on board like all of those are much direct forms of coercion um but it never starts off as coercion because no one joins no one joins a cult or a cult adjacent space um, because the people are really um, horrible and violent towards them. They start because they've been loved and, and they've been invited in, um, but then that pressure ramps up and up. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to note that even even that transition from invitation to coercion, it happens over time in the life of a community. So community starts mm. out in a place where everything's much more about invitation and then over the years becomes increasingly coercive. But it also happens yep. within the life cycle of a person's participation in that space as well. Yes. And so when you come yep. in, we've talked about the love bombing before, but you come in, uh, you know, if, if the first few weeks you walk in the door of a church community and someone's like, you better turn up on Sunday or I'll never talk to you again, <laughs> you know, you'd be like, well. I've been marking you off on my chart. Bye, you know, yeah. uh, you, yep. there's no way you would. And, and this is sometimes some of the commentary from outside, which we've, we've touched on as well. How could people let this happen to them? How could people mm. allow themselves to be treated this way? Or, 
How could a volunteer be so manipulated and 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 why mm. wouldn't they just say no and all that kind of stuff? Because it because it's not mm. like you walk in the door and yeah, and you're just getting manipulated and coerced. Obviously, from the very start, um, you are your your initial experiences are often one of invitation and of encouragement. Um, yeah, and and it's only really over time that that the stakes grow, that the burden grows, yeah. that the emotional um, weight of things increases, mm. uh, and then you find yourself in this in this place where now more and more and more is on the line for you. I could lose more and more, not just lose more and more yep. status or lose more and more power or something like that, but actually just lose my place here, lose my sense of belonging, lose yeah. my friends or, or lose um, my reputation in terms of how my friends see me or how my community sees me or how my pastors see me. Or, or even yeah. e- even relationship with a leader that you've learned to mm. really trust mm. and love, mm. you know, that mm. you, a person that you that you really look up mm-hmm. to and you might question some of their behaviour, but they've been a person who's um, led you to this great experience in life and, and you trust that. And so if you lose favour with them, um, then you're letting them down. And that's a person who you want to emulate and want to admire and want to be in relationship with and want to be special I want to have a special relationship with. That's sounding creepier and creepier as I say it, but yeah, <laughs> sometimes that's true. I think, um, uh, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, I think the, the you know the the religious or spiritual nature of these institutions like loads this up in a way that that maybe people from outside it find it difficult to to understand. But when and this is something I'm sure we've touched on along the way. But there's something there's something specific about religious coercion and religious trauma in the sense that. Um, what we, you know, this is dealing with the things that often sit at the very core of what it is that we care about, the way that we see the world, the fundamental beliefs that we hold about ourselves and about God and about others. And so um, all of this is not just kind of a, a surface management thing. There is a, there's another layer. Yeah. And, you know, this kind of thing, again, with coercion and manipulation and abuse happens within all sorts of social spaces and social networks and social organizations and communities and Absolutely. businesses. Yeah. Of it's course. not just a church no, thing. It's not just yeah. a church thing. But there is a shape to the religious um, nature of this in these spaces that that is also can become more complicated. Yeah, more complicated. Because it's yeah. more enta- mm-hmm. it's more entangled mm-hmm. with things that sit closer to the core of who we yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, going, yeah, just going back to the kind of um, invitation um, to coercion scale, that's why a lot of the kind of more public-facing um, pressure uh, is softer. And so things like um, the offering talks and the um, salvation altar calls and things like that, they have really slow build-ups with them often. And so you kind of get adjusted to the language and adjusted to the atmosphere and the environment and there's lots of kind of soft factors there. So um, often the really good closers um, with altar calls and things are people who um, who appear really kind and really soft and really gentle and have this kind of like, you know, kind of cutesy way about them sometimes times where you want to feel affection towards them and um and you trust them and they'll call you friend and um and there's you know i mean we could do an entire thing on altar calls and the kind of scripts and amazing you know uh you know i'm not gonna call you out here and humiliate you and then oh my gosh there's so many people i can't possibly get to all of you so why don't you come down and then i won't be able to pray with all of you so there's this well just look beside you a person has appeared and they're <laughs> yeah. going to yeah, pray yeah. with you in fact oh it's too much too noisy in here to pray with you they're going to take you off to a secret room and suddenly you're like oh i'm in a secret i'm in a, room I'm in a secret room with know. someone i've never met before filling out a form and and now this person's going <laughs> to ring me details. yeah 
Um, and it started off and with, I just, want to, I just want to say a prayer for you where you're sitting, just raise your hand. And Yeah, so even the process yeah. itself moves from invitation to coercion. Like, yeah. even in the, yeah. even in, with, within 10 yeah. minutes, it can do that. Within 10 minutes, Because if you yeah, started, if you started with, padding. hey, does anyone here want to... Like to come to a um, room? <laughs> You want to hear? Want to become a Christian? We're all. You need to go to this room over there with a stranger. Fill out your details, and they're going to become your new best yeah. friend and ring you next week. But by the time oh, that no sort thanks. of happens, ten minutes later, you're like, oh, okay, you know. Um, <laughs> Here I am. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's so up interesting. Um, the, yeah. the, and, yeah. the, and the scripts that are that are again so common through the network of these churches um, that you'll find in all sorts of parts of the world, and almost the exact. Yep. Same language, you know. I'm going to count to three. Yeah. Well, I'm going to count to three, Shane. One. You know, <laughs> if you were to walk out here, to here heart, tonight and you would... If your heart is beating... Yeah, if your heart is beating fast. Your heart's yeah. beating faster and faster and it's not just because you're in a situation of... Uh, it's not just because your nervous system is saying there's, there's a threat. <laughs> it's because God's touching your heart. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, so and so all of those same tricks work right and so yep. like that's why you get the the uh you know someone mentioned on the um instagram feedback thing about the old, that, that classic trick which you would have seen being a pianist uh, keyboard player on stage where it's like all across this room there's hands going up everywhere um and there's not hands going up anywhere but they want that group think thing to kick in yeah. where people go oh i'm safe on one among many and lots of people are doing this and oh maybe i should do this too um and and they're lying they're lying, Michael. They're yes, lying. they are. <laughs> and and sometimes it, it's like takes great courage to say it out loud that that person is lying to trick people yes. into uh, coming to the to respond to the God of Truth. Yes. Uh, but within the system, they can justify it to yeah. themselves. They will during an offering talk pledge fifty thousand dollars that they have no intention of ever paying. They are lying. Mm. But in the in on the inside of the system with the creep, these people can justify it to mm. themselves as somehow it being ultimately good because we have if we have to you know lie a little bit to encourage people to come to jesus then the ultimate end means people are coming to jesus yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's quite it's, what it, what yeah no go for it no you go please no please i've talked enough look oh please you uh, no i was just going to say you know if the, this goes as far as there are people actually in kind of roving ministry spaces who nobody actually particularly likes very much mm. um in terms of, and I don't mean just like they sort of don't like their personality. Well, you know, I do mean that perhaps. But, you know, they like, I, I wouldn't trust this person and I don't necessarily yeah. um, see them as someone who's, you could build something with, but that man, they're good yeah. at getting an offering in. So yeah. we'll get them to do yeah. that. Or they're good at doing an older call. Yeah. They're a good closer. Yeah, so I, I guess I just want to talk, go leap backwards a little bit mm. in the story to um to this thing that I see happening quite often, um, which is about alchemy. So in particular circumstances, and there's I'm sure there's a lot of factors involved, sociological, emotional, psychological, you know, the participation of God, whatever whatever brought this about, where there's these particular moments in history or moments in a church's life where there's a spontaneous thing that happens 
that is ultimately really good that kind of comes up from below. And so it might be this moment um, in, you know, churches often do like singing, which they call like the worship time. And there's this moment in singing where suddenly there's some kind of magic happens and people feel really connected to it and feel connected to God. And obviously it's never a universal experience. There's always people in that space who don't feel it at all Mm. and often feel quite ashamed about that. Um, But where there's this kind of like a group thing that happens where it might be um, this special moment of where lots of people feel connected to God or where um, lots of people want to give something at a particular time or lots of people in an, in an environment where you are asking people to make decisions, make decisions all at once or whether there's a sense of where that God shows up in some special way with these you know, particular things that are happening in the room where it's like, wow, that's God doing something here and that was wonderful. Um, and these spontaneous kind of magical alchemy moments where all of these factors kind of come together to make something that um, for that community is really beautiful and really good and really encouraging. Um, then later down the track, it's like, wouldn't it be great if that wonderful thing happened again? Um, and rather than saying that was a unique and special moment which came up from below, which we can't make happen, but just happened. Let's keep on doing the good things that we do in the hope that we'll have more beautiful moments. Uh, There becomes this uh, mechanization of that process Mm. of going, what did we do to make that happen? And then how can we replicate that? Because we want that every time. Mm. Uh, And some of the ways this has been spoken about is, Uh, If the spirit doesn't move, I move the spirit. And so if the thing that you want to happen isn't happening through this magical alchemy of, um, of, of forces, that it's your job to engineer that situation so it happens again because it was so good when it first happened, surely more of it would get better. And so... Um, what happens is you begin to apply particular mechanisms. Um, like, so say in the in the singing slash worship space, you get to know how chord progressions work, um, how lighting works, how um, setting a scene for these things work, how setting expectation upon what a crowd is supposed to do and what they're supposed to experience. Isn't it great that God is here in this place um, showing up and we can all feel it? And so for those who aren't, feel ashamed that they aren't, so they lean in harder or if we're not feeling it, let's really press in Mm. this time Um, and let's sing the song again like we mean it until we can muster that feeling the same as Mm. last time. And again, that creep happens um, where it gets more and more coercive. In fact, I I spend very little time, Christians make me anxious, so I spend uh, little time in uh, church context outside of my own at this point in time because, you know, I'm still working through my trauma too. But I was actually at a kind of combined church thing, which I haven't been to in um, many, many years last night. And I had just forgotten the emotional intensity for starters in these places. And it made me very tired very, very quickly um, because it brought up a lot of flashbacks. Um, But I'd also forgotten about the way in which particular things were viewed. So singing was viewed as this like, um, this is ultimately what God wants us to do. And, you know, even the phrase used of what, isn't this fantastic that one day in heaven we'll be doing this forever. Uh, (laughs) And as a person uh, who has ADHD, the idea of doing one thing forever uh, is pretty close to the idea of hell hell for me. Um, But then they had managed to take this 
um, thing that happens in worship spaces, which is every now and again a worship leader who isn't getting the oomph back from the crowd um, saying things like, let's really lean in this time and, oh, God, I'm sorry that we make this thing a formula when we're really supposed to be giving our hearts to you. And, you know, we and, and they'd actually built this into a song. So the song had two apologies in it, um, <laughs> both involving, I'm sorry that I don't take singing seriously. You deserve better than that, Jesus. And I'm sorry that I've sung the song before. Ironically, in the song. <laughs> I'm sorry that I've sung this song before but not really meant it. I really will this time because that's what makes you happy. And just going, wow, like we've actually got, we've come full circle to the point where we've actually internalised this narrative into the songs we're singing themselves. So there's this built-in mechanism which will shame anyone you know, so let's just say that you are in a really difficult relationship which has um, coercive practices in it uh, and you have entered the church space for that night as a safe haven um, and you are thinking about the fact that your life is a mess right now and then you are forced to sing a song where you have to apologise that you're thinking about other things instead of God in that moment mm. and that's really what God wants. Um, there's something wrong with that, Michael. Yeah, there is. Yeah. I mean, as someone who, you know, still is involved in music and in church life, there are, you know, there, we are all, um, I, I had a conversation on the podcast with um, Dr. Sarah Lane Ritchie uh, a year or two ago now, uh, and we talked a bit about some of this in, in the sense that, you know, emotional music is not a bad thing or, you know, mm. um, the environment of an occasion is is, is not because we are we are all even you know going and, and sitting in contemplation and silence. You're using some kind of technique mm. to bring yourself into a mm. into a place or into a state, mm. and so those things aren't in themselves, um, you know, sort of the enemies of authentic faith and and so on. But but they become used as and mechanized in ways that they are sort of forced to do a thing to you, and you are forced to comply with it. Um, that yeah. that is trying yeah. to create a certain kind of experience, and 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 you'll hear often in the you know if you if you do go into the the I don't know if, if you think about like what a what a worship team will pray before a service or what a preacher will often pray. It's I don't want people to just sing songs today. I want people to have a transforming encounter with God, uh, and and the mm-hmm. preacher. But I don't want to just be sharing words. I want people to be you know hearing God speak directly to them, um, and what. What that kind of does, I suppose, and it to some degree is 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 load up each experience as having to be this particular mm. kind of moment that is yeah. um, compares to or even surpasses the last one. Yeah, and so increasing increasing levels of transcendence. Yeah, yeah, increasing yeah. levels of transcendence, and so you just have to keep yeah. ramping and an it up. And ostracization of of anyone who hasn't who mm. isn't experiencing mm. that. I have a I have a friend um, who has never felt a connection to singing and worship mm. and that that whole thing. And those they they after you know ten years in church, they just went, I can't do this anymore. I, I can't be in an environment where that's the expectation, and everyone else is either experiencing it or pretending they are, um, and I am being shamed for not having that relationship mm. to this thing. Mm. I just can't do it. I can't do it to myself. Mm. Um, you know, 
added into the complexity of going, you know, if God shows up for all of these people, not me, what does that say about how God feels towards me? Mm. Because that's the other language being used, right? If you really want it, God will do this thing, um, which is placing a lot on God um, and, and yeah, not really understanding how brain function and a whole bunch of other things really work. I wonder if it's helpful to kind of, just as a, by way of analogy to think about like um, transposing this onto romantic love, which is which which has parallels, especially with the way that particular spaces talk about intimacy with God and things. Um, so let's talk about a kind of like alchemy moment where you know your you know the, your your lover um, who you are connected to and loves and loves you um, is swept up in this. Um, this moment of inspiration and love towards you where, you know, maybe they um, they write you a beautiful poem or take you out for dinner um, and then you both feel so much more in love because of this, these signs of affections and then, you know, they do a sexy dance for you and then you make love and you have this, like, climactic moment and this amazing experience and they... Um, love you in a particular way which makes you feel incredibly special um and 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 that becomes this kind of like benchmark for wow that time where we we had this moment that felt so much different and so much better than the way our love usually feels um and that's a wonderful thing but then you take that and go that is now the minimum bar for how our relationship should feel and also I am going to um, create situations where I demand that you reproduce that that spontaneous thing that you did that you reproduce this for me. And so, you know, where is my sexy dance now? Um, why aren't you writing me more poetry? Um, write me a letter about how great I am. Uh, re- when you try to force and reproduce a moment of spontaneity and goodness, it gets really creepy, really, really fast. Yeah, it gets creepy um, when you're trying to make someone do that for you. And it, and it gets incredibly... And I just want to apologise. While we're on there, I just want to apologise for trying to get you to do that dance again. <laughs> that, now that I say it out loud, it probably does sound creepy. That sexy yeah. dance was a one-time thing. The- <laughs> it's a one-time thing. <laughs> you know, so it's not only the the demand that's creepy and then it's the, it's the pressure the person feels perhaps who, who wrote that poem... Yeah. Even without the demand, sometimes if you've internalized that this should always get better, then you're like, oh, I better, we've got another date night next week. I better have two poems. Or the poem, you know, the poem yeah. be, might, they, they cried for a minute last time. They better cry for at least three. Uh, yeah. Or, and then all you're, yeah. you're doing is actually setting yourself up for, yeah, um, creepiness, pressure, disappointment, internalized shame yeah. and embarrassment, um, yeah. inadequacy, yeah. Uh, all of that kind of stuff mm. that's flowing out of there. Yeah, but what happens is we also end up doing the same thing to God. And mm. so we, you know, you know, say we experience God turning up in a particular way um, with some particu- particular results. We then create the expectation that that's what God does and that's what God wants and therefore we demand that of God. And if God uh, doesn't show up in that kind of way, then we are either faced with the choice of saying that was a one-time thing um, or we have to wait around for that to happen again or we can produce circumstances where that has to happen and we'll do God's work for God. Um, and that leads to all kinds of very, very troublesome places. And mm. so this stuff kind of goes across the board, like, you know, with with with, with giving, um, with uh, leadership practices, with all of these things, like the, 
the the good results that can come from a particular bit of alchemy end up getting transposed um, and 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 it's an attempt to replicate them uh, because if we had that one good thing once we should be able to have it all the time mm. and it's instinctive often rather than deliberate so it's mm-hmm. you know again even the creep here it's not always that people are like ah yes let's use um, sometimes it does get this straightforward we used this yeah. um, before and it worked so we'll do it again mm. um, so you like stuff around money often is that just that straightforward we used this technique last time. We did a money series and this is what we got. Yeah, or whatever. Or we get that guy to do it because he's good at getting it and that's what we get. Mm. Um, but it's also mm. instinctive in the moments that you're, you're sort of instinctively trying to replicate and, and reusing uh, and developing, yeah, yeah phrases. And, and there's a reason why some of the feedback we get from around the world, <laughs> across, the, across the globe from in the shift um, <laughs> is, is people being like, the, you know, the exact same phrases, the exact same turns of phrase mm. because actually they're shown mm. to work. You can, if you mm. say that thing with that tone of voice, you can get that person to do that um, or you can get the crowd to respond in this kind of way. And in fact, you know, there have been, there have been some contrasts or some comparisons done with almost like mass hypnosis type stuff or, you know, group psychology yep. and, and all of that. Oh, yep. keep saying that, keep repeating that word or keep... Uh, and yeah. I, and it's not like people saying yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not like you. All those people have been off to a learn how to do group hypnosis um, <laughs> seminar. It's just they've actually instinctively and intuitively figured out what works. And what works is if I, when I'm praying for you, I talk really, really, really quietly, and then suddenly I say a word really loudly, <laughs> and then yeah. and you get a big shock and you shake, and then just, oh, there's the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, <laughs> like there are yeah. there are, or you keep repeating yeah that term, or you keep getting people to repeat a particular phrase, or or whatever it is that you're that you've instinctively worked out. When you do that, you get this kind of result, and you've kind of yeah. mechanized the process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a classic one. I mean, we're getting into some weird sparrow stuff now, but um, sure. the laying on of hands and getting people to fall over on altar calls. So the different mm. other kind of altar calls to get people to respond for something in their life. Um, which if they aren't responding, you just broaden the category wider and wider and wider <laughs> until if you you know, <laughs> do you have everyone down the front because they really want a touch from God or something? And uh, and there's this practice within Pentecostal circles of like laying hands on people, and then mm-hmm. some people in that space will fall over. Um, for for various reasons um sometimes because they feel a, a sense of god or because they lose control of their body in the moment or sometimes because culturally they feel like they should or whatever happens but if that's not happening and that's the result that you want you just push a little bit harder um mm. to the point where uh, i you know back in my youth days was prayed for multiple times where i was just like shoved to the ground <laughs> and people even stopped pretending that it might be god anymore um and there's a sense of shame if you're the person still standing up when everyone else has fallen down so lots of people People just fall over because it's easier than facing that shame. <laughs> I was at a, I would have been probably 16 and we'd come to Auckland to go to a big youth rally type thing and there was a visiting preacher who was going to lay hands on everyone in the building, you know, so hundreds of us young people all lined up and then they took all the chairs out so that we could fall over without crashing into things. And uh, again, and if again, you're, if you're not from like Pentecostal thing. circles, then all this talk like <laughs> is, is, might sound very unusual to you. But again, makes a it lot is. of sense within the context. Um, and and he came down the line, and every person he laid his hand on, and he, he had a heavy hand of authority uh, on the on the forehead. And the foreheads <laughs> are really, you know, you kind of you either have to sort of bend backwards at the hip like a hinge, or you have to just go down. <laughs> Um, 
But he went along and everybody was going thud, 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 crashed to the ground and he came past me and he gave me a good shove and I just sort of stood there. I was very keen to to receive something from the Lord, um, but I just didn't feel anything and I just stood there and then and he carried on. you didn't know the rules. I didn't yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was fortunate that I had, even though I, you know, I was brought up in the Pentecostal tradition, I, I had parents who were very, you know, interested in, in authentic um, mm. experience of faith rather than manufactured, which I'm very grateful for. And, uh, and so I was like, well, no, I, I'm not just going to fall over just for the sake of it. Um, anyway. And so everyone, everyone, I was, I was left standing among a sea of bodies <laughs> and, uh, people running around with modesty cloths to put them on the ladies legs. Um, <laughs> if you don't know what a modesty cloth is, just a little, it's kind of a little, just, uh, just ignore that for the moment. Never mind. <laughs> Don't, we probably don't need There's to spend too long explaining to modesty cloths. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, and, and then someone, and so that all happened and I was standing there amongst all of these people. Someone um, from the church came up to me afterwards, approached me as I was hanging out and said, hey, could I just have a chat to you for a minute? And they pulled me aside and they said, could I pray for you? Um, and I was like, sure. And they're like, I noticed you didn't fall down when you were getting prayed for. So I'd like to pray for you again. Which is like you know exactly what we're talking about. The thing mm. that I'm that I've decided, this, you know, is what should happen to you hasn't happened to you, and so I need to pray for you again. And he prayed and 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 tried all sorts of various <laughs> phrases and moves, and uh, and I just sort of <laughs> stood blow, there. Did he blow on you? <laughs> oh, probably. That's always a good one. <laughs> um, and and um, and in the end, he just you know I'm a sixteen year old kid, and he's like, I feel like the Holy Spirit's bouncing off you and can't get in. Wow. And um, and as a sixteen-year-old, it's, ma- it's masturbation, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, Probably, you know. And and uh, that was, uh, I was fortunate again that I on the drive home with my parents, I explained what happened, and they were like, "Oh, no, that's that's silly. Don't worry about that." Which was mm. which was great for me. Mm. But I'm like, how many people experience that kind of internalization of blame because the mechanized mm. process hasn't worked in that moment? Oh. Um, yeah. But as we will talk about, um, they never get to say that. Exactly. Because that's not part of the system. So I'm yeah. not asked up the yeah. front to share my testimony about how I didn't fall over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the yeah. thing I have to deal with in in private. Um, there's yeah. no space for that yeah. story to be shared. No, there's not. Yeah. So so maybe maybe because um, we've got, still got a bit to talk about. Let's let's talk about like the yeah the fact that this all happens within a bubble. So mm. it, it, it all makes sense within this internal system, which makes more sense if that's the priority system in your life. So the further you get from your life outside of the church and outside of these contexts, the more this stuff makes sense. Mm. You know, one of the reasons that you're kind of encouraged to cut off um, family and friends and bad influences and all these things is because the closer into the centre of the circle you are, the more this internal logic makes sense until you can't actually understand that it's even possible that people would have a different experience than Mm. what you're having Mm. because everybody that you know, everyone on the inside, is either having the same experience or at the very least saying that they're having the same experience. And even just the loss of perspective that comes from like the things that matter, like mm. so you know this is not just all around the experience that people have, and and, and the creep is is not all, all around that either. Even if we've been talking a bit about that in, over the last few minutes, but you know whether it's like oh it's really really important that there's a that there's someone at the door saying goodbye to people on their way out, and mm. the panic that might ensue because they realise that that person didn't turn up and no one else has been. You know, I remember that kind of occasion. It's like, there's nobody at the door. It's like, actually, 
I don't think anyone even notices the person at the door on their way out. I think people will be okay. Yeah, yeah. But, but the level of kind of panicking anxiety that's generated in the, and the debrief meeting the next day that will bring up that issue of how there was no one at the door and, and how that will play out within the system says that there's a loss of perspective that's kind of gone on there within the bubble because you're just you're living mm. within this, mm. uh, you know, reality where, where, yeah. where things become increasingly either, you know, vital or critical or important um, yeah. or things become increasingly um, coercive or whatever it might be mm. and you've got no outside perspective to recalibrate yeah. or to benchmark against yeah. <laughs> your own experience. yeah. yeah. And, and then with particular s- systems as well, there's what I would call there's probably a, there's probably an actual term for this, but um, but I, I would call it a, a trauma chain, you know. So within coercive leadership relationships, um, abusive patterns get replicated because that's how people learn how to deal with fear. Um, mm. I think I mentioned, you know, I, I worked in a hospital hospital job where yeah the 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 managers whenever stress came on um, and became too much would um, would yell at people and um, and take their stress out on them and blame people and berate them and do things. And I could never understand it until I met the owner of that business who would do exactly the same thing to them. And this owner mm. had mm. raised them up. Um, and so there becomes this kind of like survival mechanism where when stress comes on, um, you start pointing the finger at people and berating them. Otherwise, that's that might happen to you. So that's how you fix the problem. Um, and so within these with these systems and structures where there is that that level of kind of like raw coercion and raw bullying, um, that becomes a, a pattern that gets replicated. And not just because people go, um, oh, you know, write that down. That's the model of leadership of how things get done. But because experientially um, when people become traumatized, that becomes um, their kind of go-to survival mechanism. Yeah, totally. Um, yep, the intern who was mistreated, who becomes the yeah. leader who mistreats. Um, yeah. And in that sense, the, the, that's the trauma chain, right? Um, this mm. kind of happened to mm. me and so I'm going to make... And this is how I got... This is how I became a great leader. Yeah. Because someone treated me like this and now look at me, I'm a great leader and so that's what you need too. Or even even less reflectively than that. Mm. Like it's the, mm. this, is, this was my experience so I'm now just reenacting that experience because that's what happens um, rather than kind of like necessarily being super calculated about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you also get um, you know, when you have a sort of a culture of, of, of everybody agreeing with people in power as well. Um so yep. where you can't have and we've talked a bit about this already, so we don't spend much time here. But I think, you know, when you have environments where you can't hear critique uh or everybody's trying to be the the good underling who does what the person above them says uh, or doesn't mm. question, doesn't disrupt, doesn't become inefficient, um, then you get the kind of the yes people. Um, and again, this mm. happens in all sorts of spaces, not just mega churches or religious yep. spaces. Um, mm. But that allows the creep to go unchecked because no yep. one is empowered at any point to say, I think this is going a bit far. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, let's maybe just, as we close, I talk mm. about, you know, like what what masks the system? Why, why don't organizations that use these practices and and look we all do to some degree so that's like probably worth like mm. naming that you know we 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 all bend towards coercion when we were in moments of stress and unhealth and so what are the things that stops us from seeing that mm. 
Yes, um, my uh, my wife has a has a, a turn of phrase that I've always found very helpful, which is uh, when you think you already are something, it stops you from becoming it. Um, so one of the mm. things that stops you from seeing perhaps what you're doing um, mm. to people or stops everyone from seeing it is when you sort of, you have these claims about what kind of church you are or what kind of community yeah. are. So we're an authentic church. Um, yeah. We put people first. And when you say that a lot, you actually sort of believe it. And mm. because of that, um, you, you sort of can't accept or even see necessarily all of the things that are in fact not authentic or not putting people first because you're like, no, 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 but we're a community that put, that's authentic and puts people first. Uh, this is what we say. And, and especially when you've got things to point to where you're saying, see, we do this and we yeah. do that. Mm. That means that we're an authentic church mm. without recognising that that isn't your wholesale practice, that for those yes. people out there might receive this kind of treatment. But that doesn't mean that the people in here receive the same thing. No, I'm authentic because I get up and I tell stories about things that I did wrong 10 years ago in my sermon. And that's, that's demonstrating <laughs> that's how authentic we are, even that's if right. I'm pretending to be way more awesome now than I actually am. Or you know, um, yeah. So, yeah. so we have these tricks that we actually do to ourselves. We actually trick ourselves in that sense um, mm. by deciding. Mm. And, and this can be sometimes the challenge. I'm, you know, I understand churches have, often have value statements and stuff like that, and they can be really helpful. Um, if they're a, sort of a guiding ethos to say these are the kinds of things we want to value. Mm. But I, I, even that language for me, I'm like, I'd much more be like, these are the things we want to value. So yeah. how can we keep moving toward them rather than these are the things we value as a community? Because once you've said that, then, yeah. then you become blind to the ways in which you're not that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Mm. And, and, and even you know, places that have tried to reform from something that they perceive as being much worse. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that whole contrast thing's a factor too, right? Even those that you're in relationship with that we're better than them, I always remember you talking about people at some point being, from your context, being worried about a rise interns and then you going, oh, <laughs> if, if our internship structure's worried about that one, then it must be cool. <laughs> quite concerning but we do this thing where we justify our own behavior by contrast to other structures that might be what we deem as worse and therefore our practice is okay yeah so i was uh, when i was on staff towards the end you know in the last couple of years when i was really wrestling with some stuff and i would say to the person who was um my superior within the organization we're starting to bring up some of these issues uh, my my friend and i within that space and they would be, and this was my superior was someone who'd come from another mega church that was even more intense. And they were like, "Oh, you think this is bad? <laughs> you should, you should have been where I used to be. This is great compared to that." And then you're like, "Oh, physically lashed them there." <laughs> so, so that takes away your ability to to then bring up anything because this is better than yep. that thing. I think this is also the yep. case in New Zealand and Australia, actually, where um, because America is the land of excess on so much of this. A lot of the senior leaders within New Zealand and Australia feel quite down to earth compared to their American counterparts. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. it's not as I don't have a jet plane. I don't. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, I don't get treated with the same kind of level of, you know, I don't. I can't. I don't turn up to a conference and demand that a shower be built within within <laughs> twenty meters of the stage because 
<laughs> because that's what I require after I preach, which is a story that happened in Australia from an American oh, preacher Lord. coming into town. Um, <laughs> How sweaty are they? <laughs> Very sweaty, obviously. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so I'm not like that. I'm not that ridiculous. And so actually, yeah. I'm just trying to follow the biblical principles, but I'm really quite down to earth compared to all of that. Mm. And mm. so yeah. if your only points of contrast are people who are way worse... <laughs> then, then you can pat yourself on the back for not being like that. And that, mm, again, mm. masks your ability to see the ways in which you have become something quite toxic or unhealthy. Um, yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, so with that as well, the, the, our complete inability to admit error when you are mm. the person who is the example for everyone to follow. Mm. So you might, you know, this is kind of like reinforced by celebrity culture, right? So mm. especially if you're a person who speaks internationally or gets invited to places to tell people how to do church and things like that, then once you gain that kind of um, crowd following you saying, you know, you're the guru who gets to tell us how to do it, then the idea that you could be wrong at any level is just um, inconceivable mm. and also just really, really offensive. And this happens mm. This happens in much smaller spaces. I, I mean, mm. I remember when, I think I told the story a few times ago where I, I had a rationale within my system and, and it came from a place you know, by and large of trying to care for people. And I was concerned that we had these, you know, kids coming to church on a Sunday that didn't know anyone um, and then came from outside the church space. And I really wanted them to feel like it was their home and they knew people and they were welcome. But more of them were coming than we had leaders available to kind of be in a place where they could sit with them and be friendly to them and make them feel not so like outsiders. And so, I um, proposed a policy where we, where youth leaders would, would would just tell me whether they were going to be there on a Sunday or not, um, and preferably just ask, um, because otherwise, then you know, I could say no, not enough people are going to be there. Would you be able to, you know, be there on a Sunday too? Which, saying this. 20 years down the track just seems absolutely obscene to me. But at the time, the internal logic of it made made sense to me and, mm. and for what I thought were really good reasons of the mm. ultimate goal of making people feel comfortable in church that might feel like outsiders. Mm. And I had a mum come and talk to me of one of my youth leaders and she was absolutely wild. And I did not understand where this anger came from. Um, but she explained to me that she had been in a coercive and abusive church system before and she was not letting that happen again. And this would absolutely not do. She had raised her kids where church was something they chose to do and she would never let it become compulsory for them. And I remember experiencing two things at exactly the same time. One being absolutely offended that someone mm. would question my decisions like that. <laughs> and another part of me being like, wow, that makes perfect sense and I can totally see your side. And I had to choose between those two things. And mm. fortunately, I chose the latter. But it wouldn't have taken much more ego to choose the former and be mm. like, how very dare you talk to me like that and you don't understand my grand logic and why I should prevail. Um, and fortunately, I was just, you know, a crappy youth pastor. But if I'd been, you know, a, a speaker on the circuit, that would have been a very different story. And you then end up in, in that space where, where, where you make the ego decision. Uh, yeah. You you end up doubling down on so that actually in itself almost makes you lean in more, like harder, to That's the thing right. that you were doing, yeah. because yeah. you're like no 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 no, I, and then you and then you layer the language of God has told me this is the 
the thing or exactly you, that. You, yeah. you layer all that on top to defend yourself yeah. essentially. So yeah. because God's told yeah. me, then you can't really argue with me about that or yeah. or whatever it is. And, and look for. And unfortunately, with the, within the power structure, I was a 22-year-old mm. with a, you know, 40-year-old angry mum, mm. um, which still held some weight for me as a 22-year-old. If I had been, you know, in a different life stage and still held, you know, um, <laughs> arrested development, if I still had the same level of maturity, which is what part of the problem is with people who have grown up in these systems, mm. is they mm. hold they hold the worldview and level of maturity, emotional maturity of you know, people in their young 20s, which is why they can continue behaving like this and not feel terrible about it. Mm. Um, yeah, it would have been the power dynamics would have been really different in that case. And so what you end up, if you have more power, is you end up being able to justify it by, um, you know, I think about normative worldview a lot here of, of this thing where for people who are in places of privilege and power, where your experience of the world is superimposed onto everyone else's experience of the world. So what is normal for you, you assume is normal for everybody else. And what um, you have experienced, then you assume that everyone has experienced and will experience behaviors and systems and structures in exactly the same way that you do. So if it's good enough for me and I'm thriving in it, then it should be good enough for you. Mm. Um, and again, we, you know, we talked about like non, um, like the, the, these, these kind of protected spaces that can't be penetrated by anything. They can't be um, ruptured by anything. They are kind of like held within this really tight bubble and system. Um, and the same goes for the experience of a leader when, uh, when, when challenged, um, if you hold power in this way, that your, your job um, in the system isn't to take on the experience of the outsider because it might be the very voice of God speaking from the underside and saying, this is what your power is doing to people. Your job is to be the guru who tells people what their experience should be instead because that's what your experience is. Mm. And it's, you know, it is, it's actually hard. I mean, the reason this happens is because it's yes. it's actually really hard to hear critique or to hear yep. um, people's experience of pain in things that you're leading or shaping, um, yep. whether that's you're running a small group within a church or you're running the yep. church itself. Um, someone yep. comes to you, you know, and says, actually, the way you are leading this has, has caused me to experience mm. X, Y, and Z. Mm. The natural response is often to defend to push back um, because I know my heart or my intentions or what I'm really trying to do here. Um, yeah. And, and oh, this is very uncomfortable and my ego doesn't like it at all. And, and, and mixed with everyone else is telling me I'm right. Yeah. And how br- yeah. everything I say, people write it down. That's how brilliant I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not a, they don't only write it down, they exclaim, wow. Exactly. They tweet um, it in caps lock. Yeah, so so it's it's incredibly it's actually incredibly different, and and here's where, you know, perhaps if we're going to talk about what what might be helpful, one is the thing one of the things that I think is helpful for people in in ministry and leadership spaces is to have the resources around them mm. that they can draw on when they actually need to um, critically examine yep. the thing yeah. it is that they are in fact helping to shape or to lead, um, mm. because it. It, left to your own devices, um, it is. It, it can be very difficult to do so. And I, I remember, you know, I remember hearing people's um, experiences of of difficulty and pain and 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 so on when I was on on staff in that kind of space. 
and just feeling a conflicting set of emotions, a little bit like you, like multiple mm. things going on in, in me at the same time. One of like, oh, I'm really sorry that you've had that experience. And the other is, but this is a church that I really love and and I want to defend. And mm. also... Um, and, and that everyone else says is, is amazing. Yeah, We're and so paving all of the this way is, for how church is supposed to be done. All of it's yeah. going on inside me at the same time as mm. I'm trying to respond you know, to, to what it is mm. that this person is sharing. And I think yeah. the creep, where the creep kind of happens over time, is that if you keep choosing defend, yes. protect, ego, yeah. over time you actually you become impervious to those voices. So early on, maybe there's a wrestle, mm-hmm. you know, your kind of story or, or some of mm-hmm. mine. Early on mm-hmm. there's the wrestle, and sometimes we probably, both of us, I'm sure, chose, um, mm-hmm. chose ego at times over. Absolutely. Um, but, but the more you say yes to the, to the defend, protect, ego track, I think yeah. that becomes the default and then over time, any voice you hear of anybody, you just write off immediately because there's no yep. way that, that you're going to let that kind of voice get you down. No. And, yeah. and then you preach about all those bozos you have to work with at a conference yeah. and tell them how you'd really like to punch them in the face and everyone laughs. Yeah, that's a real thing. Because eh? obviously everyone else is wrong. Yeah. 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 And, um, and, and that's where we, you know, we need to, I think build the kind of communities where the 20-year-old, the 22-year-old who is faced with those circumstances have people around them and alongside them and, and maybe yes. old, further than down the road who can say, yes. don't choose the path of ego and, 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 yeah. and defensiveness here. This is, and mm. Instead, unfortunately, what's happened in particular within some of these spaces and with some of these people is it's, in fact, because it generates often growth and success, it's the mm. defend, protect, ego behavior that is rewarded yes. and, and um, amplified and elevated yeah. within these communities because they get results. And, yeah. and so down the track we find some incredibly toxic people in these spaces of real influence. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I, I think worth understanding as well for all of us is that you will make profound mistakes mm. as a part of your journey, no matter, where, no matter where you fit in the system. And there will be experiences, other people's experiences of your way of moving through the world, which will come as a shock to you mm. that you'll need to make changes for, mm. not because you are an inherently bad person, but just because you have experienced the world in a particular way that does not open you to the kinds of harm that that does to other people. Mm. So I, when I was in my young 20s, like I have a story that I can't actually tell the details of um, because it's that unhealthy. <laughs> but uh, in, my, in my young 20s, our youth group did this thing and like we used to go out into the country and like drive cars around and on the gravel and, you know, do kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. And... I remember we tried to think about what the scariest thing in the world would be to encounter if you came across it on the road when you're driving at, you know, 11 at night out in some country backroads. And we came up with an idea that we thought would be really, that was really scary to us um, because it was a kind of like movie scene kind of thing that we thought would be, you know, um, really wild and really scary. And so we thought, hey, next time we go out, we'll replicate the situation um, and we'll like go ahead 
in our car ahead of all the other trail of cars behind us and we'll set this thing up and then when they come around the corner, we'll give them a big fright with this thing. This thing happened to be profoundly, deeply racist. And I have heard enough from um, Indigenous friends that sharing the details of these things to say, oh, look how much I've changed. I used to be a racist and do this, this and this is actually re-traumatizing and not helpful for people. So I'm not going to go into the details of what it was today. But suffice to say, it was something that in my worldview was a thing from the movies in America. I It never crossed my mind that people from a different cultural experience would experience this differently. Um, we happened to have a couple of uh, Maori youth boys in the car's following whose experience of this prank was profoundly different and confusing than what it was for all of us little Mm. white Christian boys. And I had a mother who, you know, these kids didn't come from a church background, ring me up and say, I want to know who that was. Um, And I had to say, it was actually me (laughs) and my friends. And she absolutely tore shreds off me. And again, I had to make a decision as to whether to face the shame of the fact that I had just entered into um, and, and participated in a cultural experience that for me was some kind of novelty, but for her was something she had tried to protect her kids from even knowing about their entire lives because of the horror of it. Mm. Um, the only way of dealing with that is empathy. And fighting the emotional responses within you which are trying to keep you safe, which is to say, if you deny it, if you push back, if you get angry, if you can be scarier than them, if you can just cover this up or shush it down, then you will not have to face the consequences of this and you can keep thinking that you're a good person. Mm. Or while acknowledging that those feelings are just trying to protect you, saying I need to move beyond them because someone else's experience matters more than mine, and even if I will never understand how deeply you feel that, because you are telling me this, I trust that you feel it that deeply, um, and I'm going to make move to moves towards understanding what that is like for you because that's what God does. Mm. Self-emptying and deep knowing of the of the experience of the other. Yeah, and perhaps this brings us kind of full circle in some ways to, to the sense that um, that we've already said, which is in these moments of reckoning, when stories come to the surface about people's experience mm. within the life of the church, mm. the instinct to defend, blame, protect the brand, admit nothing, um, yes, that instinct is there, and we need to acknowledge it. But that is mm. that is not the way forward if we are to live in tune with with the faith that we profess. If we are to live yeah. in tune with with the Jesus way in this in this path, and, and the and the narrative that a good leader is one who won't make big mistakes. Mm. Mm. Yes, a good leader is one. Who always has it right? A good leader is the one who holds the perspective mm. of all of the people. Um, I mean, the ludicrousness of hearing preachers talk about, you know, sharing their faith with people who are strapped into airplanes next to them <laughs> because the only people outside the church they know are people who are physically tied down. <laughs> um, and then them saying, see, I know how people in the world work. Yeah. 
despite not knowing anything about the way the world actually works. Like it's that kind of guru, was it? Mm. Um, yeah, and the, and the kind of, and we'll bring this to a close, but, um, you know, the, 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 this is bad for everyone, you know, this yes. guruism. And we've talked about guruism, of course, but for every, every conference or seminar you host, the, the, the pastors are the experts. So whether it's the, the yep. how to manage your finances, not just seminar or conference, like Sunday sermons. Um, yep. how, we're doing a series how on how to, man- how, how to manage your finances, how to have good sex, how to have good relationships, how to be a good leader, how to, it doesn't matter the topic. The, the leader is expected mm. to be the one with the answers on that subject. And that's just yep. so bad for everybody. And it yep. does, it makes, you, it makes you unable to acknowledge at mistakes. Um, yep. But you will still be making them. You're just not. And unpracticed, unpracticed in what it is to learn mm. so that when something big comes along, it's the first decision you've ever had to make about that mm. rather than that being a part of your way of being that you're always learning, you're always listening. Mm. Yeah. Right. So I think this is a, I think it's a good place to, to end our conversation for today. Um, the creep. <laughs> good luck. Good luck with the creep. Good luck out there. So there you have it, a discussion on the creep. Shane and I are trying to continue processing this conversation and some of the things we hope are helpful, give language, give a sense of perspective or insight. As always, drop us a line, feedback at intheshift.com. Thanks to Reese Michelle for massaging the audio signal so that it sounds listenable in your ears. Until next time.